scripture reading for this morning's lesson is from the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible and the last book of the New Testament. Scripture reading can be found on page 1028, 1028, Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 through 20. Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 through 20. John is on the Isle of Patmos and he is in a vision and this is what he writes. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. May God bless the reading of his word. One of the amazing things about the Bible is how practical, how relevant, how impactful it is no matter when we live, no matter where we live. The Bible transcends culture. Its principles and its precepts give everybody in every generation instruction. That's what the Bible was designed by God to do. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul writes that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly furnished for every good work. That means that the ancient messages that we read in scripture, they're for us. Even though they were written to people that have lived and long since passed from this life, originally those recipients, they could learn and glean messages from this word. But the way God wrote his word it means that you and I, living in the present day, can learn and can grow and can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that is an amazing thing to contemplate. When you read the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation was written to Christians 2,000 years ago who were going through some very difficult circumstances. And as you read the book, the first three chapters deal with Christ, chapter one, and his messages to seven local congregations in chapters two and three. So in chapter one of Revelation, John sees a vision of Jesus and the way that Jesus is described is significant. Lessons in and of themselves could be developed from chapter one. But as Randy just read a moment ago, the vision that John sees is of Jesus standing in the midst of his church. Seven local congregations who had different problems and different struggles and different opportunities. And Jesus is standing in their midst and he's concerned about what's going on. And he has some things to say to them. And I believe in God's wisdom and the way he had scripture written down. God intends for us to take some of the messages that Jesus had for churches 2,000 years ago and to put them into practice in our lives today. 
ancient messages for the modern church. If Jesus were to preach a sermon to the church of 2019, if he were to preach a sermon to the church here at Katy, what kinds of things would he say to us? Let's look as we look at Revelation chapters two and three. If you haven't already got your Bible open there, please do that. Beginning in Revelation chapter two, seven letters that Jesus writes to seven different congregations, all in very close proximity with one another. And let's listen to what Jesus would say to the church today. As you read Revelation chapter two, verses one through seven, notice first of all, Jesus, if he were going to talk to us today, would say this, make sure that you don't lose your focus. Make sure that whatever you do, that you keep the main thing, the main thing. And that is extraordinarily difficult to do for any group. But when we follow Jesus and we belong to him and we want a relationship with him, keeping him and our love for him as our focus is difficult. But that's gotta be our priority. In Revelation 2, verses 1 through 3, Jesus is writing to a congregation in a place called Ephesus. And he says, you're doing a lot of things right. There are some doctrines that you are standing against and some things that you're doing that I commend. And I'm heartily in favor of what you've done doctrinally. But then in Revelation 2, verse 4, here's his criticism of the church in Ephesus a local congregation, and he says to them, you have left your first love. Some people have suggested that the church's first love is evangelism, that these Christians have stopped reaching out to the lost, they've stopped teaching about the message of Jesus Christ. I don't necessarily believe that is what Jesus means by you've left your first love. Their first love, before they ever tried to share the message with anybody else, before they ever tried to tell anybody else, their first love is God. Their relationship with Jesus Christ because of his death and his sacrifice for them. We love because he first loved us. And Jesus is saying this to the church. You are doctrinally accurate You're standing for truth and you're doing what's right and I commend you for that, but you are empty inside. You're not being doctrinally accurate because you love me and because you desire a relationship with me. You're being doctrinally accurate for some other reason. Listen and listen well to what the Bible indicates. Doctrinal accuracy is essential for a congregation to be healthy. We must stand with the word of God. We must emphasize what the Bible emphasizes. We must teach what the scriptures say. Doctrinal accuracy is essential to soundness, but it is not synonymous with soundness. It's not the same thing. You can't be sound and healthy without being truthful, without being consistent in God's word. You can't be sound without that, but it's not the same thing to say that just because we teach the truth and just because we emphasize what the Bible emphasizes, that we are everything Jesus wants us to be. It is possible for people to have strong biblical convictions, right biblical convictions, and yet lack compassion. And that's not very Christ-like. It is possible for churches to emphasize laws without love. God's law 
stands and it cannot be compromised and it cannot be ignored, but we are to speak the truth in love. Ephesians chapter four, verse 15. I wonder if, by the way, Ephesians 4.15 was written as a precursor, as a foreshadowing of what was going to happen to the church in Ephesus by the time you get to Revelation, when they've left their first love. It is possible for a congregation to emphasize the rules and the regulations and the precepts of God, and yet to neglect the real relationship that also must go hand in hand with that. If you love me, keep my commandments, Jesus said. John 14, verse 15. Stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong, and yet let all that you do be done in love. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 and 14. Don't lose your focus, Jesus would say. Second, what would Jesus say to the church today? Look at verses 8 through 11 of Revelation chapter 2. He would say, count the cost. He would say, I want you to realize that following me is a commitment. Following me and being my disciples, it's not just about associating with other people of like precious faith. It's about standing for what's right, even when and especially when it's difficult. And so before you sign on and before you say, I have decided to follow Jesus, count the cost. Think about what's at stake. Jesus writes to a congregation in a place called Smyrna. Smyrna is one of the two congregations in Revelation 2 and 3 to which Jesus offers no criticism. He doesn't tell them that they need to change anything. Certainly there might have been some things that needed to be put in their place, but Jesus doesn't bring that out in Revelation 2 verses 8 through 11. What he says to this congregation is, be faithful unto death. Your faithfulness to me is commendable. You have stood through tribulation and difficulty and distress, keep on doing that even up to the point of your death. When you think about what the Bible says about Christians, 2 Timothy chapter 2 gives us some illustrations, three illustrations that help to support this idea of being faithful until death, of counting the cost. The Apostle Paul says being a Christian is like being a soldier, 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 4. A soldier doesn't entangle himself in the affairs of this world that he may please the one whom has enlisted him. We're soldiers of the king. Not only that, in 2 Timothy 2 verse 5, Paul uses the illustration of an athlete. Someone who wants to compete, someone who wants to play, must compete according to the rules, must discipline himself, must count the cost. This is what it's going to take to play and to play well. And then the idea of being a Christian is compared to being a farmer, a hardworking farmer. 2 Timothy 2 verses 6 and 7, who patiently waits after working so hard for the early and the late rains, knowing that his investment will pay dividends. Being a Christian is about realizing that walking with Jesus is not always an easy thing. Count the cost. Jesus would say that to churches today. Remember, that the devil is real, the enemy and evil is around, and that counting the cost is essential. Number three, what would Jesus say if he could talk to the church today and if he were going to say something, ancient messages for the modern church, he would say this. Look at what he says to the church at Pergamum. Revelation 2 verses 12 through 17. Doctrine does matter. We are living in a day when truth is considered to be relative 
and when specific doctrines of Scripture are very, very different from one church to the next to the next. And you might go to one assembly and you might listen to a sermon or you might listen to a concept being taught and you might find the exact opposite being taught at another group down the street. And people will say things like this. They'll say, as long as we are following Jesus, doctrine is really not that important. And yet when you read these messages to the church 2,000 years ago, it's amazing how relevant they are for us today. Here's a congregation that is dealing with some false teachings. Look at verses 15 and 16. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 14, 15, and 16. In verse 14, Jesus says, you, I have a few things against you. You have those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. I don't know what all was involved in the doctrine of Balaam, but Jesus and that congregation knew this was not something that was part of the gospel. This was not something that resulted from what you read in Scripture and what was being revealed by the true prophets of God. And then in verse 15, he also mentions, there are some of you who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I also hate. There are some teachings, brothers and sisters and friends, that Jesus says he hates, he despises. He will not tolerate those things and therefore neither should his people. Doctrine does matter. And here's why it matters. It matters because what you and I believe, what you and I take into our hearts, and what we allow to be the truth in our minds and our hearts is going to have consequences in our attitudes. It's going to have consequences in our words. It's going to come out in the way that we live. What we think, how we speak, how we live, all of that comes back to the doctrines that we have embraced. And therefore, Jesus says, I want you to remember, church at Katy, it matters what you believe. It matters whether what you believe is part of what the Bible really teaches. In verse 16, Jesus says this to the church at Pergamum. He says, repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus was looking into these people's hearts and he saw there was a group over here that was believing in the doctrine of Balaam and there's a group over here that's believing in the doctrine of the Nicolaitans and Jesus says, repent, change your mind about those things. Let scripture be your guide. You know what the church today needs more than anything else when it comes to doctrine? We need to ask the question that Jeremiah asked, is there any word from the Lord? Jeremiah 37, verse 17. The king asked Jeremiah that question and Jeremiah had an answer to give. Absolutely, there is a word from the Lord. You and I need to ask the same question. Has God spoken about this? And if so, what does his word teach? Doctrine matters. Next, what would Jesus say to the church today? He would say it's not loving to tolerate evil. It's not loving to tolerate evil. The church at Thyatira, very close to Pergamum, they were struggling with false teachings of a different kind or a different degree, if you will. In Thyatira, the Bible says that there was a woman that was a member of the church and Jesus calls her Jezebel. I don't necessarily believe that that was her literal name, that there was actually a literal lady named literally Jezebel, but there was a lady in the congregation and everybody knew who the Lord was talking about when he mentioned her. And look at what Jezebel 
is doing. Verse 20. She calls herself a prophetess. She claims that she has authority. This was in the age when miracles and miraculous gifts were still available. As she's coming into the assembly and she's saying that God has spoken to her and you ought to listen to her because she has a message from God. So she claims to be a prophetess. And not only that, but she is teaching people, verse 20, and seducing people to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. So this lady has it in her mind that God has been giving her messages and that he has been speaking directly to her and she is going around and you know that what she's saying is false. You know that what she's saying is not the gospel because number one, she's enticing people to commit sexual immorality. The gospel does not support that. Number two, because she's teaching people to eat meat sacrificed to idols. There's a lot to be said about that subject in 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10. Paul had a lot to say about the subject of eating meat that was offered to idols. This lady seems to be saying something different than what Paul would have written by inspiration. And so as you look at the fruit, as you look at the life that she's living and the life that she's trying to encourage other people to live, and you see what's happening to people, they're not being led closer to Christ, they're being led farther away. But notice what Jesus says about Jezebel. It says you tolerate that woman, verse 20. You tolerate her. Maybe it went something like this. A lot of people knew that what Jezebel was doing was a problem. A lot of people knew that the way she was saying things and, and what she was encouraging people to do was really problematic. But after the closing prayer was said in Thyatira and everybody went out into the foyer, I know they didn't have foyers and things like that in those days. Everybody went out into the foyer. They would have conversations. Hi Jezebel, how you doing? I don't buy into what Jezebel says, but I can still be a Christian brother to her. And maybe they had conversations separately over dinner, over lunch. And they said, what do you think about Jezebel? Well, I don't agree with what she's teaching. And I don't agree with the way that she's encouraging people to commit sexual immorality. But we ought to be loving towards her because after all, we can help her to grow and we can help her to, to become more like what she needs to be. And what Jesus is saying in this passage is, that kind of tolerance when she has an agenda and she has a desire and she's going to promote actively things that are sinful and wicked and that are going to corrupt the people of God, you cannot tolerate that. That is not loving. It's not loving her because she's condemned and it's not loving the people that are influenced by her because they're condemned as well. Read what Jesus says. There is a point at which loving people needs to take a stand that is disciplinary in nature. Jesus says, I gave her time to repent. Even Jesus, if you wanna say it this way, tolerated her. There must have been other warnings that Jezebel had received, evidently based on verse 21. She had learned and heard maybe from a prophet or an apostle or someone. What I'm doing is wrong, it displeases the Lord. But she has not repented. And then Jesus turns to the rest of the church and he says, you can't tolerate this woman anymore. This is a case where church discipline needs to be exercised. And the rest of you hold fast what you have. Don't be swayed and don't be taken in. Don't listen to 
people that are doing things that are leading you away from the gospel. Brothers and sisters and friends, we ought to be patient with one another. We ought to be as our default kind toward one another, but it is not loving to tolerate evil indefinitely. That's not right. And that's what we learn in the way that Jesus says that people ought to deal with that Jezebel 2,000 years ago. Next, what would Jesus say to the church today? Verses one through six of chapter three, he would say, church at Katy, beware of becoming comfortable. Watch out for that. It is so easy to get in autopilot mode, to coast. It is so easy to let the programs and the plans and the things that we do to just become by rote, by automatic, and let's just not think about and invest in who we are and what we're all about. Very similar to chapter two, verses one through seven. Don't leave your first love. The church at Sardis, they had a reputation among the churches and their reputation was that they were alive. When people talked about the church at Sardis, they said, what a great congregation. They've got so many good things going on over there. They've got so many people that are really doing wonderful works. Jesus had a different assessment. Jesus looked right into their hearts and he saw the root of the matter and he said, you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Beware of becoming comfortable. You know, we might think about as God's people what it means to become dead. A church can be busy and can be active and can be involved in all kinds of good works and yet still Jesus' assessment is, you're not what I want you to be, you're dead. How does that happen? It happens sometimes because churches become focused on themselves. We start to navel gaze, we start to obsess, we start to concern ourselves primarily and predominantly with ourselves. And that's all we ever think about. We live, brothers and sisters and friends, in a community of half a million people. We live in a county that if it were a state would be the 26th most populous state in the United States. Just our county, just Harris County. How dare we as God's people focus only on ourselves? How dare we forget that there are people who need to hear the saving message of the gospel? And how dare we get involved in works that are good works and yet forget that our master has challenged us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We need as God's people to make sure that we're not becoming comfortable that we're not focused on our achievements. Look at all that we have done. Look at all that we have been a part of. Always looking forward, forgetting what's behind. Isn't that the way Paul described it in Philippians chapter three? Pressing on, I'm not going to count anything that's behind me to be of worth or value or substance. I'm gonna look forward and press on toward the prize. When we're content with the status quo, we are in serious trouble spiritually as a congregation as individuals, let's follow Jesus and let's make sure that everything we emphasize is what he wants emphasized. What would Jesus say to the church today? Look at Revelation chapter three, verses seven through 13. He would say this, open your eyes. I don't believe it's an accident that he said to the church at Sardis, you're dead, repent, hold on to what you have. Those of you who have not soiled your garments, 
And then he speaks to the church of Philadelphia and he says, there's an open door for you. Opportunity, Philadelphia and Smyrna back in chapter two. They are the two congregations that Jesus doesn't offer any criticism to. And both of them were suffering already. Both of them were going through difficult times already based on the text. Jesus says to the church at Philadelphia, look, I have set before you an open door. You see it there in verse eight? In Revelation 3, verse 8, I've set before you an open door. You know, we have songs in our songbook, and I don't think they're wrong in and of themselves. It's not wrong to sing them, but they're about salvation. There's an open door, and if you'll just open the door, you can let the Savior in, and he'll come, and and, and he'll save you from your sins. That's not what this passage is about, though. Jesus is not saying, I've set before you an open door, and if you'll just open the door, you can be saved. That's not his message to Philadelphia. His message to Philadelphia is... You guys have a wonderful and amazing opportunity at your disposal. And I want you to open your eyes and I want you to prayerfully and thoughtfully consider how you can take advantage of this opportunity. I'm glad that Jesus didn't describe specifically what the opportunity was. Was it an evangelistic opportunity? Was it an opportunity to to stand before a king or a governor and to proclaim the, the word of God to somebody that really needed to hear it? Whatever the opportunity was, Jesus doesn't spell it out for us, but he says, don't go to sleep. Don't become comfortable. Open your eyes and look and see the opportunity that's before you. I want you to know that when we follow Jesus, we're following someone who always, always, always sees possibilities. When Jesus looks at us, he doesn't just see us for who we are right now. He sees us for who we could be with God's help and by God's power. When Jesus looked at the apostles, he didn't just look at them as fishermen and tax collectors, who they were, sinful men, rough men. He looked at them for who they could become with his help and by his power. It's amazing the transformation that took place because of those men who followed Jesus. Jesus always sees possibilities. As a congregation, you and I, we need to see possibilities the way that Jesus does. What could happen with God's help by his will, by his power? Not only that, as you read what Jesus says to the church at Philadelphia, he talks about their struggles, he talks about their difficulties. One of the principles that you'll find in scripture is that opportunities and adversaries are very often found in close proximity. When you see difficulty, when you see a challenge, when you see a problem, there is usually a great opportunity associated with that. Paul writes this way in 1 Corinthians 16 verse nine. He says, a great and effective door is open to me and there are many adversaries. You know, sometimes the church faces problems and you look at the problems and you just kind of get overwhelmed by them and you say, how are we going to deal with this? How are we going to solve this? How is this going to be something that we can change to the glory of God by his power? We need as God's people, not just to see the problems, we need to see the possibilities, the opportunities that are available to us. And very often adversaries and opportunities are seen in close proximity. I believe God's people more than ever before 
when we look at what's happening to our society, when we look at what's happening to people all over the world, and we see it daily on the news, and you can kind of get down in the mouth and discouraged about it, I believe if ever any congregation ought to be optimistic, it ought to be congregations today. Because the future is bright, brothers and sisters, and it is as bright as the promises of God. God has spoken into this world, and he has spoken about what he promises to do, and our attitude ought to be. He has given us exceedingly great and precious promises, First Peter, 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4, and we're going to hold on to those, and we're going to be a light in a world that is dark. That's what Jesus intends for his church to be, a city set on a hill that cannot be hid, a light that is not hidden under a bushel, the salt of the earth, those who need to change the world around us. Open your eyes. And then, number seven this morning, what would Jesus say to the church today? He would say, be honest about your faith. Examine yourselves. Sardis and, and Laodicea, Revelation 3, verses 14 through 22, had very, very skewed conceptions of themselves. Sardis was leaning on, apparently, what everybody else said about them. Everybody else said that they were alive. Everybody else said that they were doing well not what Jesus would say. It seems that the church at Laodicea, they were looking at themselves and they said, we're doing pretty well. Look at verses 15 and 16 of Revelation chapter three. Jesus says, because you are lukewarm, verse 16, I will vomit you out of my mouth, neither hot nor cold. And then he explains what he means in verse 17. He says, because you're saying about yourselves, I am rich. I have become wealthy. I have need of nothing. And what you don't know is that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. He said that to Christians. He said that to people who should have known better. They had become self-sufficient. They had become comfortable. They had become lukewarm neither hot nor cold, not really passionate about anything, just lukewarm. And Jesus says, I want you to be honest about your faith. Where is your confidence? Where is your faith? The Bible says that when we become Christians that God intends for us to be zealous. He intends for us to be enthusiastic about God's work. He intends for us to constantly trust in Jesus Christ and to rely on him. After all, it was about Jesus that John wrote, zeal for your house has consumed me, John 2 verse 17. After all, in Titus 2 verse 14, the Bible says that when we become Christians, God makes us a special people zealous for good works. After all, in 1 Peter 3, verse 13, who will do harm to you if you are zealous for what is good? In Psalm 119, verse 139, the psalmist wrote, I am zealous for your word, O God. Be honest about your faith. Am I a passive, apathetic type of Christian? Am I zealous for the things of God? Because you're neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm, Jesus said to the church at Laodicea, I will spew you out of my mouth. 
Be honest about your faith and be honest about what really motivates you. Surprisingly practical things to say to the church today. God's word is eternally relevant. It will never fade away. And what God's people need to do is continually go back to the scriptures and let the scriptures change us. We don't change the message, the message changes us. It helps us to realize how God would look at a congregation. It helps us to realize where God's heart is and where the heart of our Lord is. Thank you for listening this morning. Get your song books and open to the song that David mentioned just a few moments ago. Perhaps you're not a New Testament Christian. You need to obey the gospel. You believe that Jesus Christ is God's son. You believe that he is the only one who can save you from your sin. And you're ready to make things right. You're ready to start that relationship and enter into the grace and the forgiveness that only he can provide. Having believed in him, confess his name before others. Romans 10 verses nine and 10. With the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Repent of your sin. Turn away from the life and the ideas and the doctrines that you've believed and let God's word be your source and your authority for all that you do. Repent and then be baptized. When we are baptized, we are entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ. It doesn't begin before, it begins at the point of baptism. We become a child of God. We participate in the new birth, born of water and the spirit, John 3 verse 5. If you're ready to make that commitment this morning, if you need to respond and ask for prayers, whatever we can do to help you, won't you come while together we stand and while we sing.